Thanks for listening to the first episode of the Brian Ethan podcast for 2023. Means a hell of a lot to myself and, of course, Ethan Roth. We've got a lot planned for 2023 and a lot of new things as well, so stay tuned for that. But it doesn't get any bigger than this. Anthony Kudafides, the Carlton legend, AFL Hall of Famer, up next here on the Brian Ethan podcast. Yeah, good, mate. Thanks for having me. We went the hardest in the, the celebrations. Can't say myself, can I? Uh, <laughs> You sort of almost got to tell yourself that you're a, you're a big game player or a big finals player. So somehow I thought, well, just because I play well as a 13-year-old, I have to play well in the grand final. Me and, me and Cogs are um, a couple of good WA boys and we, we do get a bit affectionate with each other, always giving each other kisses and stuff. Nah, not really, just, you know, a manly kiss yeah. on the cheek every now and then. G'day guys, welcome back to the Bray and Ethan podcast. For the first time in 2023, we've had a couple of months off, Ethan, and just like last year, we started off with a big name on the show, and it was on, a, I guess, a significant day of Australia Day last year, and we've got Valentine's Day this year. Who have we got joining us today, Ethan? Yeah, pumped for a new year, Bray. Um, as you said, back in a big way. He changed modern AFL, often regarded as one of the most athletic, one of the most uh, dominant and powerful players to play the game. Just about achieving everything you can. Um, still a Carlton icon to this day and uh, doing some very good work post-retirement. Anthony Kudafides, Kudi, Kuda, welcome. Pleasure to have you uh, with us. Thanks very much, boys. I appreciate it. Great to have you on, mate. Uh, well, we know you're a busy man, so we'll jump straight into it. Talk us through from being a big Collingwood fan to then being a part of Carlton at the age of 14 and choosing footy over a possible Olympic dream. Yeah, no, I was a man Collingwood supporter growing up. My first local football club was East Thomastown, so the northern part of Melbourne, and uh, they were black and white. So I'm, I'm assuming that was probably the reason why I buried for Collingwood, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, I know in my area, it was mainly Carlton Collingwood supporters. My older brother, Paul, he was a mad Carlton supporter. And uh, yeah, so at the age of, I lived in the Carlton zone. So this is back in the 1980s and uh, just before the draft days happened, which I reckon the draft maybe in 19, on, 1988, maybe around that sort of time. So I'm not sure. So at the age of 14, I get a letter uh, uh, from the Carlton Football Club. I look at it, I'm looking at the Carlton Emblem thinking, why can't it be the Magpie? And uh, they invited me down really just, it was a junior development squad back then. So we trained once a week for 10 weeks and uh, every week they eliminated players. So we might have started with a hundred and something players and every week they eliminated. And if you got picked, you played off in a carnival during school holidays. So it's like a part-time kind of thing that they did just to see what sort of talent. So I got picked and played a fullback for two years, actually. So I played underage and then, I played the following year fullback again. I got picked for the Victorian team. I was the only Carlton player, actually, and I didn't really know any other players. We played down at Tasmania. I was mainly emergency or a bench player, really, until the last two games where they played me in a ruck, and I was a bit of a short ruckman, but because I was already like an Australian champion high jumper at that stage, I could jump. And so I played really good in the last two games, and uh, that's when... You know, the, the next year, Cohen offered me uh, to go down and try out in the, in the uh, under-19s at Cohen. And so I gave away my beloved Lalo Football Club. I had my brother there, had some other local mates, which made it easier. Otherwise, I may have said, look, I can't do this. It's too hard. But I had their, them around me, which made it easier. And a lot of uh, guys that I knew from the northern suburbs of Melbourne. And, um, yeah, I played two years under-19s there at Cohen. And uh, I played in the Tool Cup. I got picked in the All-Australian team. It's sent out back. And... Uh, 
yeah, that's when they offered me a uh, contract at, at the football club. I was age 17, so it was the end of 1990. I, I was 18 the following year uh, in January, so not too far off being 18. And that's when I gave away my love of athletics. And I loved athletics. I had a really successful junior athletics career also. But I had to decide on the two. And uh, I thought I would have had the best opportunity really playing for the Golden Football Club. As a young kid, I looked at AFL players and looked at them like the old gladiators. And so it was a tough one. I looked at athletes and I'm looking at 1988 Olympic Games and people getting caught, you know, drug cheating and all that. And I'm like, you know what, maybe this football thing might be a better option for me. I got invited to a... Division One college in America to uh, do athletics there, but there was no way I was going to leave uh, Melbourne. So I chose to, uh, you know, take up that opportunity to play for the Carlton Football Club. Yeah, it turned out pretty all right as well. Uh, you, know, you, you played quite a bit of reserves footy before making your AFL debut in 1992. It didn't take long for people to notice you, especially with your ability to pick up the ball one-handed. Did that come naturally or was it something you practised? Because I imagine not a lot of people would recommend picking the ball up with one hand, especially back in those days. Yeah, i got a funny story about that because my older brother Paul in grade six got a letter from his teacher. I had two Cuda, the only kid to pick up the football one hand. So we both did it. In the under-19s, my brother was there, Carlton under-19s. Uh, he picked up the ball one-handed uh, at training and Ross Henshaw was our coach. He was a former North Melbourne player, a couple of premierships in North Melbourne in 1970. He was hard and tough guy very scary like very intimidating and uh, when my brother picked up the ball one hand he he called everyone into the huddle and said if I see you Kuda or anyone else pick up the ball here with one hand again you won't be here and uh, so we all got scared and uh, 1992 so I uh, was on the list in 91 not getting a game in 1992 I played six games 93 eight games so it was a very slow start I, I, I couldn't cement myself as a senior player although you know I want to reserves best and fairest playing the full back in 1992, but uh, round 21 was the la second last game of the year. I played against Collingwood for the first time, and that was the day that I picked up the ball one-handed against Jamie Turner, and I uh, kicked the ball down, and everyone was talking about this one-handed pickup. I didn't even realise I did it. I just, it was part of my game, and, you know, you see the ball there, and you pick it up, and uh, David Parkin came to me the next morning and said, Kudo, I've been waiting 30 years to see someone do what you did yesterday, and that was to pick up the ball one hand. So it was a little bit different to Ross Henshaw, and so I... I not that I ever really trained for it. It's just the way that I played. I, I don't know what it was. And I didn't even realise half the time that I was picking up the ball one hand. I just thought to me it was just a natural thing. So, yeah, I was very lucky because I got known as that player to pick up the footy one hand. Yeah, for sure. Well, Carlton were a powerhouse in the 90s, making three grand finals, including that flag in 1995. You also made your first All-Australian that year. What were your memories of that grand final day? Because it was so early in your, in your career. It really was, Bray. You know, like halfway through 1994, I got dropped uh, uh, to play in the reserves. And really, at that stage, I was three and a half years into, you know, being on the senior list, and I thought it was the end of my career. And uh, I went to see a sports psychologist. His name was Anthony Stewart, who then the club employed the year after. And he taught me these words, I can, I will, you just watch me. And he said, you've got to highlight these words in your diary. And every day, you've got to have things that you're going to complain. You're going to tick it off. Any little thing, and you're going to tick it off in your in your diary. And guess what? Two weeks later, I get picked again to play on the wing, and never look back from that moment. So I was pretty much in the best players, I reckon, every week after that, except for probably the last final. And uh, yeah, then we had the most extraordinary year, 1995, when everyone said that we were too old and too slow that we'd never win the premiership. And we got through that entire year, only losing two games to the two bottom teams, which was unusual. And we got thrashed. It wasn't like it was close, but 
after that, it was uh, on board and full on. And man, we, we were just one of the most incredible. I played with some of the most incredible AFL footballers of all time. And uh, we got to the grand final day. To me, as a young kid, that last Saturday of September was always the greatest day on the calendar for me. I looked at those players, wanted to be like them, but never imagined myself being a premiership player. I was lucky enough I walked into the most powerful club in the competition back then. That was the Carlton Football Club with so much success and premiership players everywhere. And then uh, I was so nervous that day. And I'm usually pretty good with big occasions, but the grand final, knowing that I didn't have next week, one opportunity here, I missed out in 93 when they played off against... Essendon, I was emergency that day sitting in the grandstand thinking I want to be out there playing and so I had that opportunity to play and you know we ran out 90 odd thousand people against Geelong and Geelong were favourites, I don't know how but by half time we had a convincing lead although you knew there was still another half of footy to go and then I remember halfway through last quarter we were up by 80 odd points at that stage and I'm looking around and think MCG, I'm, like, I'm thinking man I'm about to be a premiership player here I could not believe it and when that sign went we went absolutely mad and uh I celebrated, many of us celebrated for many, many weeks. I think it was about five weeks. We almost drank every day and ate crap. And I went from 95 kilos to 103 by the time I got ready for pre-season and it wasn't muscle, boys, yeah. So uh, the body didn't like what I was doing. But, but you know what? When it was, I looked at it this way, three and a half years to really become a senior player and all the heartache and pain, the emotions that I went through times when I thought I'm never going to make it here as a senior player. So... Once that, you know, 95 season came, we won that premiership, I, I was going to make the most of it, and we all did. We had such a wonderful time. It was a great time to play footy. There wasn't any video cameras or phones out there. We could just be ourselves and run amok and, uh, you know, not do anything silly, but just have a lot, of, a lot of fun without worrying about what people were going to say, and that's what we did back then. I just want to ask, it, it, it's usually your first AFL pre-season that's your toughest. What about the 96 pre-season backing up or after all those celebrations <laughs> oh it was tough only because i was really out of shape sore back couldn't <laughs> run well you know putting on eight kilos not good it's not a good uh image back then but you could come back a little bit overweight back then and work yourself to it and that's the way it was nowadays you've got to be in almost pristine condition by the time you return so nothing will be as hard as that first pre-season i can assure you bray uh that was when i did 50 100s and mate, we went on a torture camp for 10 days where we trained morning and evening, and at lunch you did a swim or or a, or a bit of stretching, and that was like for ten days we had one day off, and so my body was absolutely thrashed, and I couldn't make and get through the fifty one hundreds, and so I went from being an athlete to run the one hundred ten metre hurdles and maybe a two hundred metre sprint or four hundred, but not running kilometres and kilometres like what I did at that football club. So that first preseason was always going to be the hardest. And people started to idolise you, you know, speaking about the 90s, as the 90s went on, you know, you dominated each, each position. As you said, there was no social media and that sort of thing back then, but you were, you know, people were see, seeing you as this footy god and um, you were the, allegedly the first AFL's, AFL's first million-dollar man. Uh, so how, was the popularity a lot to take on and, I guess, all the attention? It was, Ethan. I mean, I came, you know, two migrant parents and I lived in the northern part of Melbourne on, a, on the main road and uh, all of a sudden all this fanfare came in 94 when I started to play good footy. I had, you know, things happening to me. Adidas came along and, uh, you know, 95 went to another level and everyone knew where I lived and there'd be, I don't know, I don't know, this brave roses on my car. There'd be, you know, tooting out the front cuda and, you know, people walking past and I'm talking to people. It was a great time though, but it, it was no trouble. 
you know, that's where I was pretty lucky. You might have got one, the odd one here and there. Nowadays, I reckon you'll get a few more than that. But Australia was Australia back then. And we, as you know, there where I lived in the northern suburbs, we had such a great community and everyone got along really well. So I was pretty blessed. But the fanfare came here yeah, pretty thick and fast and hard. I was a little bit of an immature kid when I walked into the club. But during that time, I really had to grow up quickly. Uh, I, I always respected people. And I'm sure at times I probably wasn't, the best person because, you know, you just get like so much attention at you. Sometimes you just need to like breathe a little, but I think for 95% of the time, I just try to do the very best that I could and, you know, sign autographs, say a lot of people have photos and just try to be myself that I was the way that I was brought up. So never thought of myself as above anyone else and uh, love the fact and uh, very honoured that I was able to play, you know, football for the Carlton Football Club and enjoy the most incredible decade of the 90s. When I think of the players they walk in now, they never will uh, experience what I experienced walking in the most powerful football club. Yeah, because they're pretty big like, tags to get, you know, as you said, like the first AFL's first million-dollar player, uh, the sponsorships that came, you know, there was controversy with Nike and, and Adidas, so it would have been a lot to take on. It really was, and particularly that time there with the boot saga of Adidas and Nike. I mean, the club went to Nike after being with Adidas for 20-odd years. I think it was around about that sort of time frame and then just made a decision without asking and, you know, new marketing people. And they were lovely people, and the club was un- unbelievable. But I felt like, you know, after all the heartache and pain I went through those first three and a half years in my contract, I, I was on very low, you know, amounts of money. I was like, man, I've got to stand up to the bully now. And, uh, you know, I really wanted to be with Adidas. I was with them. I was contracted them. And the club never spoke to me about it. Like, never said, look, we're going to Nike. Would you be okay to come to Nike and just sit down and talk about it? So I was like, I really want to be with the three stripes. I always loved Adidas, a European brand, knowing, you know, my parents were that sort of way as well. And so I stuck uh, uh, stuck with it. And uh, we, we did go head-to-head with the club a little bit. And I almost forfeited a game. But luckily on the day of the game, on a Friday night against Richmond, uh, David Parker rang me up and said, mate, it's all good. We've resolved that you're going to be playing tonight. I'm like, thank God for that, because I didn't want to stand down for a game fighting the club. But uh, I had to stand up to the club for the first time also. And then that opened up the floodgates for any other player to be able to wear any branded shoe that they wanted to. So before that, we were stuck with whoever was. If it was Nike or Adidas, you had to wear their footy boots. Uh, but after that, you know, a lot of players were signed up with all these different brands and got extra money that way as well, which I guess has set the precedence for the way footy is now also. Yeah, for sure. And... Most blokes, I guess, in footy, choose a lower number, something that was unique about yourself. You wore the number 43 for your whole career. What was the decision, I guess, to remain with that number throughout the whole career? I think in my first year, I was 46. I'm pretty sure about that. Then I think they gave me the 43. My mum was born in 1943, so all of a sudden, I'm wearing the number 43. I didn't ask for it. I'm like, wow, my mum's born in 1943. I'm going to continue wearing this number. And that's, that's what I did. And so they asked me a couple of years later whether I wanted to go to a lower number. I said, no way, I love the 43. And uh, it just looked so big on my back as well. Like I just loved it, the 43. Knowing that my mum was born in 1943, I just wanted to continue on with that number. And, of course, I had an absolute legend before me in the number 43 and could never forget Swan Mackay as well. So another amazing play. I never got to witness him. All I did was really see his highlights and you could see – how uh, an incredible player he was as well. So an honour to wear the number 43 after him. He unfortunately had the games reckon. I unfortunately just beat him with it as well. But he played 260-odd games, I think, for the Carlton Football Club uh, wearing the number 43. So, 
yeah, very lucky. I love that number, and it means yeah, it means the world to me, actually. Yeah, I was going to say, in an era now where players are swapping numbers, it's hard to see anyone breaking that for, for some time. But um, in 2000, you were the favourite to win the Brownlow, and you might have done so if it wasn't for injuries. Shane Wodin obviously took it out, who we've had on this show, and was a very deserving winner in the end. Um, but to win the AFLPA MVP... Instead, must have been special having been voted in by your peers. Yeah, it was. I mean, really insignificant. So the Brownlow medal is always going to have be above. And some people might say, oh, the MVP is more important because your peers voted for it. It probably is. But really, people are going to not look at that. They're going to look at the Brownlow. And uh, I was clear favourite. I don't know how many BOGs in a row I got uh, during that season. But uh, it didn't like equate to on the night of the Brownlow where I was getting three votes in the media. I might have got one or two or nothing, really, in Brownlow medal night. So... I knew I was in trouble because I knew I didn't play the last three games and I wasn't leading the Brownlow, I don't think, when I got injured as well. So, well, Shane Wadden had a t- terrific year as well. And, uh, you know, he was, a, he's a, he was a great player. I mean, a lot of people may look at him and say, oh, you know, maybe, you know, is he one of those Brownlow medalists that, you know, shouldn't be there. But, you know, at the end of the day, mate, he played good footy and he got the votes and, you know, full credit to him. He won a Brownlow medal and... It didn't really, you know, I guess sink in until at the end of my career when you look at the resume and you think, mate, wouldn't it have been nice to have just said that I won a Brownlow as well, you know, year 2000 when I was favourite. But it wasn't to be. And that's life, isn't it? You've got to accept some things go your way and some things don't. But uh, a lot of people talk about that year that I had there and, uh, yeah, remember me for the games that I put together that year. Some, some uh, yeah, really, really good games, some of my best games of all time. So that's the way it pans out. Yeah, it sure is. Well, the club went through some challenging years in the early 2000s. You were named captain in, in 2004. What did you learn from that experience and the step up to obviously being captain? It was an honour for me. I mean, as I always thought to myself, I walked in when I was 14. There I am at age 31, I think I was, when I, I got asked to be captain of the football club. I was like, man, I can't believe as a young kid you walk in. At the end of my you know career, I'm going to captain this football club. I was going through a very tough time. It was the complete opposite of the way that I walked in. I mean, once John Elliott left at that football club, it was almost like everything fell to pieces. We got a new leadership in there and they just didn't do the job. And um, it was a tough one because I seen the other side of the current football club and then I seen this side. And, you know, as you start to get older, all you want to do is play finals footy. But I just couldn't see it with the, the personnel you know, the, the people that we had there. But this is what I do know now. What it taught me a lesson is that if the hierarchy, if the, the top of the football club is not, you know, solid and not a great, you know, the group that it needs to be, it's going to be very hard to win a premiership. You need everyone aligned. And that's when I walked in that football club. I always say that John Elliott was the greatest president of all time in that football club because he built a family community there. And we look forward to walking into that football club. Uh, he protected us like a father would. And uh, he made it fun to be around. And he set standards. And, uh, you know, basically he taught me when I w- first walked in, he was like, if you don't win a premiership here at this football club, you will not be remembered. And that's the sort of pressure that we felt as young kids. So we had to step up the plate if we wanted to be around there. And uh, he was just a magnificent man. And so I got to experience there and then the other side of it. But it just proves to me that if you don't have good leadership, it's going to be very hard because it filters down to the, to the rest of the people. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and fast forward to 2007, uh, you made the decision to retire. Was there any temptation to try go again and reach the 300 games or were you, you know, pretty set on finishing up by the end of it? It was a tough last five years for me, you know, uh, with a different coach. I had so much success beforehand and training was almost like we turned back the clock after I had so many injuries. We were very old-fashioned with everything that we did. We really weren't up to date with everything. So, 
I think my body took a bit of a pounding those last five years of my career. It was a lot of different sort of running. And I think I felt like I think I could have trained myself better to be better prepared for the games. But, of course, you can't. It's a team sport and you've got to go by whatever set set aside for you to, to go and do. And so, look, I would have loved to have played 300. Considering I played 50 reserve games and had quite a few injuries, that would have been, you know, uh, would have been unbelievable to get there. But, yeah, once again... I just wasn't, there was no way I could have gone on. Not the way that the body felt, the way the team was going. And uh, yeah, there was a lot of dramas going on at the club. So it was very unstable and it wasn't a great time. So not a good way to sort of finish my career. It was the complete opposite of the way it was when I first walked in. But uh, that's life and you learn and you look back and go, some people are blessed. They have the same coach, same people and never affects their career. And other people go through different, some players get injured. There's all sorts of factors that come into play. Uh, over uh, someone's career. Yeah, because uh, that was like a real, like, I guess, era change. I was like Chris Judd, Mark Murphy come through. So it was kind of like, might have been, probably was time. Um, Just before we get into some of your off the gut stuff post-retirement, I know you said before, you know, looking at your accolades, you know, do you pinch yourself now looking back? I guess something like a Hall of Fame in 2014 was probably a good way to reflect on what you did. Um. Obviously, all the achievements we've said, you know, there's best and fairest in there. There's You played State of Origin. You're in two Team of the Centuries. I mean, do you look back and think, you know, how did I do that? Oh, I did, Ethan. You know, when I always say this to people. Halfway through 1994, when I'd struggled for three and a half years and I was age 21 and getting dropped, if someone had said to me, Kuda, don't worry, you're still going to make the Hall of Fame, AFL Hall of Fame. Uh, you're going to win a couple of best and first. You're going to win a premiership. I would have said, you know, what are you taking? Because there's no way none I'm going to be able to achieve. And my career started so slow, but it really propelled after that. So when I look back, I do pinch myself. I know I probably could have got more out of myself, barring injuries and a lot of other factors that maybe come into play. But the peak of my powers, um, there's no, you know, no doubt one of the... Uh, the players that people will remember, like there's, you know, there's many others out there as well. But during the 90s, I felt like we had the best players going around. The game was just an unbelievable, um, you know, thing to watch. The game was just so much like action everywhere, the high marking, big bumps and all that. That's when I felt like footy was at its pinnacle and I got to play at that sort of time. And when I look at some of the greats of the AFL that I got to play against, you know, you Gary Ablissini and you Tony Lockett and Jason Dunstall's and Wayne Carey's and... Mate, the list goes on with Hurdy and Bucks and Vossi, you know, these guys around my age. Like, I got to play, you know, Rashuda. I got to play for all the, against, you know, all these legends of the time that I'm, people will go back and always remember those sort of guys. And even at the Carlton Football Club, I got to play for not just Carlton greats, but AFL greats. So, to, you know, getting inducted into the Hall of Fame was just like, wow, this was just mind-blowing for me. To think that all the players that I played with, it just puts me that little bit above majority of the players to say that they were unbelievable players, but not all of them got into the AFL Hall of Fame. So I can take that with me. Yeah, exactly. Well, congratulations on the, on your career. It was yeah, outstanding and yeah, the Hall of Fame sums it up, doesn't it? Bro, you weren't alive when I, I was know. playing, mate. You're too young. How, how do you know? You both were too young. I mean, what, we would have watched we would have watched the, the yeah. back five years, well, 2003, 2003. Boys. I'm an so Eagles fan. I remember the 06 <laughs> flag. So there you go. I remember that. So I saw your last couple of years. Uh, well, post footy, you've done a lot, including Dancing with the Stars, some other TV shows as well, and heaps of speaking events. We see your love for smoothies, and as well as starting up Cooter Fit, as you're rocking the Cooter Fit shirt uh, on the recording today. Yep. So, what's the transition from footy 
been like to, I guess, 2023 now? Yeah, Dancing with the Stars was 06. So just the last year before I retired, I did that. I uh, started as least favourite to win on that show and they had the odds and somehow went all the way and won it. I uh, danced against, against uh, Chris Hemsworth. So there's my claim to fame. The bloke yeah, right. was squillions making movies that uh, was favourite to win that show. He was doing Home and Away back then and great guy. Uh, yeah, so I was able to just say that I defeated him in dancing, although I'm sure he can dance a lot better than me right now. I had Andrew Gaze on the show, Thames, and Lewis had wonderful people on that show. So that was just unbelievable to go out and win for a guy that never really danced. I didn't know anything really about dancing except for nightclubbing under the influence of alcohol. But other than that, no idea how to dance. So that was good. And I did the uh, All-Stars series that got aired last year, which was 2022. We filmed it in 2021. So four, three other winners, so four of us winners against six other people that had been in other previous dancing shows and four newbies. So there was 14 of us. I didn't win that one. I uh, got to the semi-final, but there were six in the grand final, so I wasn't good enough. But I was there right to the end. Could have gone either way. May have, could have easily have ended up in the grand final, but didn't. So I had a great time. I also did Gladiators as Coup to the Greek God. 42nd Street, it was a theatre that Richard Pratt's wife, Jeannie Pratt, asked me to be part of. And so some sellout shows. I was the thug on there, a little bit of my acting. I didn't quite uh, become as famous as Chris Hemsworth, actually not even close to that. And uh, But I, I, I get so I acted a little. So, you know what? I think life's about just having a go at certain things and just, you know, experiencing it. And that's that's what I've done. And, you know, after footy, I was lost in those first three years. I was like, I wasn't, never got invited back to do with anything in terms of footy. For I don't know why. I, don't, I must have done something wrong when I played. And, uh, yeah, so I felt the love for, you know, my Herbalife business, the Cuda Fit business where I go out and help people, communities. And it's just been wonderful for me and uh, spending time with the kids and my family, which is really important also. Yeah, we've seen of uh, helping people keep healthy lifestyles, also um, doing a lot of things with, with Cuda Fit. Um, I saw a photo the other day of you at Carlton, outside of Carlton training session. I think it was on your Instagram and you're still getting absolutely mobbed by Carlton fans. So, you know... 15, 16 years after you retired, you still must feel the love from the fans and still must feel really really connected to the club. Yeah, Ethan, I look and I pinch myself sometimes. I just think how blessed I am. People still stop me and say kuda or, you know, recognise and I still get beautiful messages via social media. And I went down, it was uh, it was an open day and my little boy, Lucas, my young boy, is 12, he's in year seven now. I mean, he loves Carlton Football Club and loves footy. So I was like, we've got to get him to the training uh, before, you know, he starts school. So that Wednesday before he started, I went down there and invited Anthony Franchina and his daughter to come along, who's an ex-teammate of mine. And, uh, yeah, we went down there. And then as I walked out, I just, um, I don't know, unfortunately or fortunately got caught with Cohen's supporters. And I was happy to sign the things. But then, yeah, I did. I, I looked up and there was so many. And I was like, I'm trying to sign. I was with 20 minutes or whatever. I'm like, guys, I apologise. I, I, I couldn't stay there. I, I was late for an appointment as, as it was, but I would have had to probably stay. I don't know how much longer. That's not bragging, but that's how good the current supporters are. And to be remembered, when I think of all the heartache and pain and everything I went through to the football club and not being able to get back in there and helping out in any sort of way, for the supporters to still remember me, you know, there was young kids obviously had no idea who I was, but their parents would have said that's Cooter or whatever. And they came up to me as well. So, just very blessed. I'm very grateful for uh, all the people and uh, the supporters of the Carlton Football Club. I'm a very, very lucky man. Yeah, and you mentioned the heartache and pain that the, they've gone through in recent years. Obviously, they rose up uh, the ladder in 2022 to just miss the eight. 
But 2023, what are your expectations for the Blues? Top four could be on the cards. Two common medalists in the forward line and a Bradlow medalist to lead them out. I reckon they'll be on top of West Coast Eagles, Bray. Mm, yeah, Who are you for, sure. for, Ethan? I go for Freo. Yeah, maybe. Oh, geez, anyway, but not so. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, look, I really expected. I, I would not have been surprised last year if they finished in the top four. I felt like they were just like a team. They were just they were there, but could have gone either way. But I had faith that they could have finished in the top four without being overly confident about it. So I definitely thought finals last year. You know, barring injuries, they would have made finals. I mean, how do you go out and lose the last three the way that they did and lose by one point against Collingwood and Bulldogs winning by just enough to get scrape into the finals? But uh, I'm expecting, you know, top finals this year, maybe possibly top four. I just think they've got an uh, you know, unbelievable team. And everyone's going to improve, and we know that. I went to watch them train. They look super fit, but I'm sure every club does right now as well. So it's hard to judge, but... I would expect with the players that they have, like you said, the common medalists and some of the superstars they got. Obviously, Walshy. Hopefully, we can get him back. Is is a Zach that got injured now too? I just uh, Zach Williams. Yeah. Yeah, poor guy. I mean, you know, he looked like he was going to just start firing again as well. So, barring injuries, I don't see any reason why they don't make finals. Finally, and I'm uh, me, me, my son Lucas. We just like I'd be excited to just go and watch one finals game. But I have deep inside of me that belief that they can go a bit further into the finals in just one week. Yeah, 2013, I think was the last time. Yeah. Um, so coming up to a decade, pretty much. Yeah, my young boy was three years old, so <laughs> you can hardly remember that. So we've got to yeah, right. get to the finals. We do, you do, for sure. All right, let's go to the Instagram Q&As at Bray and Ethan on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, got a couple of late ones that came through as well, Ethan. So we'll get to them after we get to these first couple. First one from Stephen Eppis. What players do you feel are most? Uh, so, what players do you f- do you feel are most like you, and which do you think would trouble you in the modern game? I think there'll be a lot that would trouble me. Uh, I don't know. People compare sometimes myself to Cripper and even Kurno. Um, there's been quite a few, you know, even Bondapelli at one stage, I think Luke Beveridge mentioned to say that he's very similar to myself, but you know, they're different players, there's no doubt about it. Um, Nat Fife was compared to myself too. I mean, it's hard to say because, uh, you know, Nat Fife can play a bit everywhere, there's no doubt about it. I think the other players, I think Charlie could potentially play in a lot of other positions, but. The guys are super fit athletes now. I would have loved to have walked in now only because I came from such an athletic background that when I turned up at the football club at the end of 1990 for my first pre-season, we're doing 50, 100s, running eight kilometres. Isn't that my, my body broke down almost instantly because I was never a long-distance kind of runner, but we did all this kind of training back then. It was solid work without too much um, emphasis on someone you know doing their first pre-season where they're a lot more careful now, so they tend to look after the players a little bit more. So... It was like throw them in the deep end and if they can swim, they do and they survive. They do. If not, they're out the door and we'll get the next person in. So hard to compare, but there's quite a good, uh, lot of good players out there right now and a lot of them are good athletes, probably better athletes than what I was. Yeah, well, Stephen, who said that question in, he uh, said that he believes Fife is a poor man's cooter, so obviously rated, rated your game. Just on that, though, I'm interested to know because there's a lot of talk now about players getting drafted and um, as someone like yourself who is very athletically gifted, the football smarts versus athletic, athletically gifted, what are your thoughts on that? Obviously, a combination of both is ideal, but um, what are your yeah. thoughts? 
you've got to have both. Ethan, I've seen some great athletes. I mean, I was compete against some that maybe didn't have the career I had or didn't even make it into the AFL. So you need to have both. I found it hard at the start because everyone was like, oh, he's more of an athlete than a footballer. I don't think they realised that I started playing football at the age of eight and played all the way through. You know, I was, uh, even in grade four, when I was in my primary school, the grade fives and sixes teachers, when my brother was in grade five, they're like, they want the teachers want you to play. My brother was saying to me, I'm, like, I'm not playing with the grade fives and sixes. And then uh, they'd come back to me, they, they want you to play. And so even in grade four, I'm playing a full forward in our team that had over a 1,000 kids at our school and, you know, we got to the grand final. So we're a pretty decent team. I'm kicking all these goals, you know, in grade four and grade five and then grade six, I was the captain. So I had, like, you know, made um, the zone teams. Like, I, I accomplished so much, but it was more the talk like he's more of an athlete than a footballer. And maybe if someone – I never got taught really about the game of football, but maybe if someone at the club grabbed me and said, run here, run there, do this and whatever, I would have – Learned the game a lot quicker and better, maybe, but I really had no guidance until Barry Mitchell and Wayne Britton, you know, were at the club. And they were the ones who taught me more about the game than anyone else. And they were the ones who propelled my game to another level. So I always thank Wayne Britton and Barry Mitchell. And Barry, of course, being Tom Mitchell's father. So knowing Tom ever since he was a young kid running around, cute little kid, blonde hair. And it was so good. I was uh, thrilled to see him win a Brownlow medal too when he did. Yeah, absolutely. Another one from uh, Stephen. Uh I kind of touched on this before, bit of a surprise that you hadn't been called back to anything. Uh, would you ever go back to the club to coach or have another role? Yeah, look, I'd always, I've always said it, but then it sounds like I'm, you know, putting myself out there. But I get asked a question, put it this way. I love the club. I want to see him succeed. I really want to see him win the next premiership. I want the guys that represent the Cardinal Football Club to really understand the Cardinal Football Club. If the time came that they were to approach me, of course I'm going to look at it. I'm not going to go, no way, I don't want anything to do with the football club. I always feel like I'm indebted to the football club. But if it comes, it, it comes. But right now I think they're in a good position anyway. I'm not here to sell myself or whatever. But always open in terms of football because I love the game of footy and I'm going to be coaching my young boy this year for the first time as well. I want to get a bit more involved and try to instill some of the lessons that I learned into these young kids, potentially help them you know, get the most out of their game also. Yeah, nice. Yeah, for sure. Next one from Bessie. Can we get some insight in the into the Savlaki Hut ad? What about it? I don't know anything about it, boys. <laughs> Put it this way. You look at my highlights, you might get 2,000 views or 3,000. You might get 5,000 views and you've got this Savlaki Hut ad that's got about 1.7 million views. So <laughs> it was uh, an ad I did. I, I called the monkey. I called the gorilla monkey. Mind you, I was just talking to a screen, so whatever they put on after that, I didn't even know. But it, it wasn't, uh, it never got put onto free to air television, but somehow got put onto YouTube. And I don't think there was a lot of, uh, I don't think there was a lot of uh, things going on on YouTube back then. And so uh, I think this video must have stood out. Anyway, it travelled the world, went to Greece, and got on the most popular show in Greece, and got voted the worst commercial of all time. They actually could not even talk. I think for about two or three minutes, I was just in tears laughing on the show. So who knows? People might recognize me in Greece. So there's that guy from the Savlakout ad. If I was to go there, maybe. You never know. But uh, yes, it's still going around uh, right now. But uh, obviously, there wasn't a lot of uh, yeah things happening back then on YouTube anyway. Yeah, still gets a here and there. Uh, James McDonald, was there a falling out with Dennis Pagan or anything like along those lines? It wasn't a falling out. I mean, it was probably a disagreeing in the way that we trained and the way that we played. It was a really old school kind of methods that 
you know, back in the under-19s and, uh, you know, early 90s when I was playing, it was almost like we just turned back the time. But look, Dennis was my Till Cup coach. He got the best out of me in Till Cup. I always admired him from afar. And he, mate, the, the 1990s, what he did to North, for North Melbourne was just unbelievable, outstanding to win two premierships, be the team of the decade. So I can never deny what he did for AFL. Under-19s, he'd win premierships every year. One year, he coached the reserves at the Essendon Football Club, won a premiership. Then went on to win two premierships at the Kangaroos. Outstanding uh, for what he did. I just felt like the game had just zoomed past him. And, uh, you know, if we were going to be a threat in the AFL, there was a lot of things that needed to be changed. So I have full credit for Dennis. And, uh, you know, I wrote a little bit about him in my book that, uh, you know, I just tried to be as honest as as I could where I seen the game in the club. It wasn't a great environment to be part of. and I lost a lot of great teammates through those five years and the culture was just completely changed for whatever reason. So that's the way it goes. I'll put it this way. Dennis did his absolute best. And you could always say this about Dennis, that he does give his 100% in everything that he does. For sure. Next one is AFLHistory.Collectibles. Opinion on Favola when he came to the club and his natural ability. Yeah, he had unbelievable ability. Uh, Wayne Britton seen that too. And uh, if it wasn't for Dennis Pagan coming to the club for February, it was basically out the door. And the next day, I think Britt's got the sack. And then Dennis said, I want you to play here. And Brendan uh, f- played his best footy under under Dennis. And he excelled. He was the one that people would turn up to come and watch play. You don't know what to expect from Fev, whether he was up or down on the day. But on, when he was up, oh, my goodness me, he was an absolute superstar and uh Unbelievable to watch. My mum loved watching him play, and so I'm sure many, many thousands of other current supporters love watching him play too. He was an excitement machine, and not too many players that will get the ball in a banjo line and you think this is going to go through uh, through for a goal. So that was for Vola for you. Uh, a few more. Another one from James McDonald. Did you keep or sell most of your playing jumpers? Yeah, no, I've kept them. I've kept my playing jumpers, yeah. I have no intention of selling them, in particular the grand final one. That's staying with me. Mm. Yeah, no, have to have to keep that going. Yeah, too sentimental. Uh, and I think we'll probably finish with this one from AFL History Collectibles again. He says, "How good was Andrew Walker when he came to the club?" Yeah, Walker was outstanding. His first game, he had something like twenty-seven possessions. We sat there in the stands in awe of this young kid that could just, you know, when you talk about ability, and I think his kids are obviously going to get a lot of his uh, genes into him. But he had speed and endurance, and to have that combination was yeah. Yeah, Craig Bradley, and Matty Richardson's and Ange Christou, like these sort of guys that had both uh, speed and endurance. I mean, I had speed and power, but my endurance wasn't great. And so Walks had it all, skills and was able to mark, get the ball off the ground. He was a phenomenal player, but more importantly, a great guy as well. Yeah, when I think about Walker, that mark that he took instantly mm. comes to mind. I didn't even win mark of the year, but yeah, he was he was a gun in his prime as well. And it was robbed. That was probably one of the better marks ever in the AFL as well. And I believe it or not, get mark of the year. Uh, Kuda, can't thank you enough for your, well, giving up your time today. It was a legendary career and uh, it was great to chat all about it. And all the best with Kuda Fit. And hopefully the baggers can go, well, at least one step better than last year and push up into that top eight in 2023. Thanks for your time. Thanks very much, boys. I appreciate it. All the best. Thank you, Kuda. Ethan, we've got some more guests on the way in the upcoming weeks. Uh, we don't reveal too much, but yeah. maybe a bit of cricket to 
come back for 2023. Yeah, looking forward to it. Don't want to reveal too much, but some young guns maybe on the way. Yeah, of course. And at Bray and Ethan on the socials, give us a five-star Spotify, Apple Podcasts as well. Give us a follow for upcoming guests. Follow Cooter as well. Yeah, follow Cooter. Follow Cooter. Um, well, thanks for your time. Ethan, we'll be back next week of course and uh, we'll keep the guests on rolling through here on the Bray and Ethan podcast we'll chat to you next time